A warm servus from Munich, and welcome everyone to the High Tech Ventures podcast. Our mission at High Tech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The High Tech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved. Entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors. Most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Annalena Schindel, and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. My guest today is Jan Schnorr, founder and former CTO and CEO of C2Sense. Today, Jan's wearing a multitude of hats. One of them is scouting new potential startups inside the German Max Planck Society. It's great to have you here today, Jan. Thanks, Annalena. Very nice to, to be here today. Um, I first met Jan a couple of years ago, and at that point in time, he was sort of in the midst of, a, of it all. He was building his company, C2Sense, in Boston, and he was very like deeply integrated into the MIT ecosystem, was um, funded, amongst others, by the, the MIT-led deep tech fund, The Engine. Um, so super busy with, with his company. But already then, um, I also met someone that had reflected a lot about his role within the company, sort of this transition of and the differences between being a researcher and an entrepreneur, um, being a CTO or a CEO, and also what that does to you in your life. And I'm, I'm hoping we get to hear some of the insights from that from that path today. Um, to get us started, I would love to talk about your personal journey to where you are now. And maybe we can just go through those different chapters of your life and sort of start with the question of what actually sparked your interest in, in chemistry in the first place, like what took you down that, that research path? Yeah, it's, um, I guess there, we, we have to go quite a while back. It's, uh, uh, in, in high school, my, my dad is a chemist, uh, himself and, um, high school chemistry is always a bit of a mixed bag. Sometimes you have teachers that are amazing and sometimes, especially in chemistry, maybe you, you don't. I, I got pretty lucky, uh, there. And on top of that, um, I, I had had a father who would do little experiments with me at home and, and got me excited about it without ever pressuring me to go in that direction. And I I happened to be and uh, back then and, and I think still still now very interested in a lot of different things. And um, it could have been anything else other than chemistry, but I, I I was good at it and and I enjoyed it and I I liked this idea of, of chemistry where you can create things that no one has ever created before. Uh, if it's a new new plastic that has new pro- uh, properties, is biodegradable, uh, for example, or, or uh, some uh, fuels that are more sustainable or anything like that. So it's really something completely new. So I, I like that idea. I like that combination of uh, the theory, but also the hands-on aspect um, in the lab. And um, so, that, you know, at the same time, I was, you know, 18 or so when I decided what, what to go for in undergrad. And, um, you know, it, at least for, for me, it was um, just, you know, picking something that seemed kind of obvious. Uh, it wasn't, you know, a year-long reflection. 
So um, yeah, I decided to sign up. I started in Frankfurt, where where I grew up before, and um, so it was a relatively straightforward choice in a way. And without sort of the the grand vision of like I need to do this because X, it was more sort of just a natural transition, sort of from the the, the home chemistry experiments into the, this is what I continue doing because it's fun. You know, I think when when thinking about my career or other people's careers, I, I think there are some people who build their career more like a rocket. They they aim it uh, in in one direction. They know exactly where they want to be in fifteen or twenty or thirty years. Um, and then when I think about my career and also other people I, I meet, I feel more like a an air bubble underwater. That is, I like, you don't really know which way it's going to take. Hopefully, it's going to you know end up getting closer and closer to the surface. Um, and so, um, until a couple of years ago, when I when I left my startup, and and we'll talk about that later. Um, I, I think uh, I hadn't really sat down and done like some deep sophisticated career planning. I did things I liked, and when I saw exciting opportunities, I, I was able to go for it. But I didn't have that grand vision, the five or ten year plan. Totally okay. But sort of, you were in a place that you liked. That that was sort of the, the the starting point. How did you end up at MIT? Like, was that part of the sort of opportunities that that came about, and and you jumped at? It, it was it was interesting. You know, during undergrad, things things went well. I liked it in Frankfurt. Um, and I had my group of friends there, did a lot with the scouts, uh, which later also affected how I decided to lead teams and uh, a lot of the work I do now. And um, to be honest, I had this vision how, you know, I would work for a local chemistry company, maybe live in the suburbs where my parents are with, you know, German Shepherd and a station wagon, <laughs> uh, those kinds of things. And um, it happened that towards the end of my, my diploma, a few things came together. Um, one part was, uh, that I, I was dating someone who didn't feel like there's a good uh, group for her biochemistry, uh, PhD in Frankfurt. Uh, so we were seeing where we could both, um, live and work for our PhDs, looking at Göttingen, Munich, um, and so on. And, um, you know, and got to a point where we thought, okay, if we're looking at different cities in Germany, we might as well also look outside Germany. So that was like the one part. The second part was that earlier that year where I made the decision, I had visited my youngest brother who had spent a high school year in Florida. And I saw how how nice it is to really get out of the little bubble. And so that influenced me. And the third thing was that I just happened to be lucky that uh, one professor in Frankfurt, um, Harald Schwalbe, he had done, he had been assistant and associate professor at MIT. And talking with him about next steps um, and getting encouraged by him to just apply. Um, that really helped me do that step. I, I, at the time, I never imagined MIT would, would even remotely consider accepting me. And it just felt so far away. And um, so these three things together um, got me to, um, well, apply there. And of course, I hadn't really planned ahead very far. So I ran a little bit out of time and only managed to get one application in. That was like the one that later made it through. Um, but I did have a really nice fallback plan. I had um, secured a half-year internship at Max Planck Institute for Polymer Research in Mayans, where um, 
the director had offered that I could stay there uh, for my PhD. So that would have been amazing as well. So it wasn't that, you know, the fallback was nothing. Um, but yeah, it, it all uh, worked out in the end. But a lot of little coincidences. But once it looked like MIT is, is an option, it, it became clear immediately that, okay, there's something I really want to go for and, and something that's really going to be exciting. Take me to MIT then. How how was it different, or like what what changed compared to your little Frankfurt mm -hmm. bubble? Mm -hmm. It's uh, one one thing in the beginning. I, I thought for for a place like MIT, it's all about getting in. This like I felt like this the big barrier. Uh, turns out this is really where the fun starts. And uh, one one big thing I think in Frankfurt we had a, a really strong group in in my year. Um, really motivated people. Um, But then, of course, like in any university, you also have people who don't have so much time or who are maybe not that interested. Um, and, uh, you know, all the exams are adjusted to the overall group. So sometimes, you know, you could get through not working super hard. At MIT, one, one adjustment was that everyone was really in for it because everyone like, had gotten into the school they really wanted to be at. So everyone was super motivated. Some people were extremely good. Uh, the rest was still very good. And um, I really had to work hard to be in the top third uh, or, or so. And so that was an adjustment. The other part that was really exciting was um, really um, losing the fear to try new things. So in, in the research lab, um, so in, in Tim Swagger's research group where... Um, I wanted to go even during the application process. Turned out he's not only a great researcher, but also a really nice, nice person and good, uh, good PI. Um, there, he gave us a, a lot of trust. So a lot of things that you know, elsewhere you would have a technician do, or you would ask an engineer to do for for you if you're a chemist. Um, he would just encourage us to to do it, and and that really changes how I think about things. Now I have this mindset that said where. If someone else has learned to do it, I can probably also learn to do it. And sometimes it's inefficient, okay, but but it's not impossible. And and that that was really uh, really very really, uh, very nice. And maybe the last thing was, um, you know, being in Cambridge, uh, Boston, where in a relatively small city, more like the size of Frankfurt, um, you're surrounded by a lot of people from all over the world. Uh, You have a, a huge density through like Harvard, MIT being very close together, all the other good universities. Um, so you have this density of really interesting people from all over the place. And, and that affects you, that, that really like motivates you, that inspires you. So that was a, not just MIT specific, but a really big part of, of how uh, now my, my life uh, was, was shaped from there on. So you're in this, in this new ecosystem, you've got a bunch of like very high achieving, uh, I call it, people around you sort of striving to, to give their best now that they're in MIT. You have this um, PI who, who helps you sort of, or pushes you to just try, try out new things. Where, where does a startup begin to form? What was the trigger to build the company? Was it, was it a technology insight? Um, was it part of that sort of ecosystem sort of, of, of people and, and, and inspiration around you and, and someone pushing you to try out things or like what, what happened, what, what ingredients came together maybe to, to mm -hmm. then start a company? 
It, it it's a few factors, like, like I guess, and and everything in life. Um, one one part is that I always like building things. I always like bringing people together to achieve something um, amazing. And um, so I had uh, organized some meetings of some of the uh, subgroups in um, in the lab, and uh, so I knew this kind of uh, stuff I, I liked. And this is something I'd done with the scouts, something I did in the lab, something I did like everywhere um, I ended up. Um, so there was that part, and then. Um, the lab did very applied research. Um, I knew that, and that was something that attracted me. They had developed a sensor for explosives before that was used, for example, by the U.S. Army in Afghanistan to find people who who made bombs or, or you know find, uh, look for landmines at a project at airports at some point. So, so I liked that because I always cared about applications, and um, and not as much about the very fundamental research as important as it is. And so there was that part. And then I had um, transitioned onto a project in this gas sensing space, like the explosive detection project. In our case, it was um, pretty broad around all kinds of, of chemicals we could detect. And then over time, it shaped into something to look for ethylene. Ethylene is important because fruit gives it off when it ripens. So if you measure ethylene, you can know, for example, if an apple uh, needs to be stored longer until it's you know, nice and tasty, or if it needs to be sold very quickly because it's about to spoil. And um, so there was some industry interest around that. And they had approached uh, Tim Swagger, my, my PI, um, if we wanted to do something around around that uh, that project, and uh, so he had asked me if I wanted to do do a startup together. And at the time, I had pretty solid plans to move back to to Europe. Um, so I told him no, of course. <laughs> you know, and he asked again and again and again, and I said no many many times. And um, then at some point, my plans changed, and um, you know I. I thought about it again. I was like, oh, right, let's try it. So, and, and I knew it would excite me. I just, you know, uh, didn't feel like I have the, the flexibility to stay in the U.S. for longer. Yeah, and then um, one one day, I remember like, a few months before uh, my, my PhD defense, I sent him an email and, and tell him, hey, Tim, can we talk about the startup again? And uh, so then, you know, yeah, and then we tried to build it, tried to, you know, justify to ourselves that it's actually not a bad idea and um, but that was like one of the the turning points and again there i knew it was a good opportunity but it hadn't been planned years and years ahead and you had a very determined pi that sort of maybe helped set that that first bug into your into your mind saying look this is something you i, I believe that you can do um i, I think it's yeah on, on a few levels i, I think it's um he wasn't pushy at all uh, about it, but he he was excited. He is a very optimistic and excited person. And, um, you know, he, he felt like I'd be a good person to, to do it um, because of some of the work, you know, the leadership work I'd done in the group because I was working actively on that project. Uh, when I said no, he, of course, had looked around who else could be an option, but it did feel like a very good fit when, when it became possible. And, and I knew like once I decided I was, uh, 
immediately excited about you know building it uh, that, that for sure so there was like no no doubt that it's a great opportunity what, what was the, the the personal motivation was it the the vision of building something of your own or was it also the problem you were solving or the like the, the role that you could see yourself in like what were the things that you look forward to yeah it's an interesting question and and i think that's one of the ones that are really fun to talk about with different founders right because they're like from from my, my coaching at, at um my splunk or, or other work whenever i run into to people everyone gives a really different answer even though the startups look somewhat similar or maybe even superficially the people look similar so for for me um i like the technology um I like the application, you know, avoiding food waste is certainly impactful. Uh, it felt like something that's worth putting time into. But what I personally am always most excited about is building amazing teams. It, it's, I mean, there's a lot of things that are, that are fun, but I always care a lot about the people aspect. Because in the end, the, the team is what, what makes it, at least in my mind, what makes the startup incredibly successful and makes it a ton of fun to be in the middle of and so this idea of building a, a team of uh, of people who are super ambitious super good at what they do and amazing team players and you know nice nice people to to work with uh that was super appealing and on top of that then and the second layer of course the technology the impact and and all that was um was very meaningful but i think in retrospect it it was around the opportunity to, to build this team from ground up. I want to dive into more depth in, in a second, but mm -hmm. maybe we should, or, or give us a brief picture of what, what C2Sense did, mm -hmm. or what, what, what's, the, what's the grander idea? Like you've sort of mentioned mm -hmm. the technology and the sensor, um, what are the applications, what are the, or what's the potential of where can that technology go? And, and what's the new aspect about it? Like what's something that you solved that hadn't been solved before? Mm -hmm. So if you if you look at um, this like connection between the real world and the digital world, there's always some way to get real world information into the digital world. Think about digital photography or or video cameras in in your phone now. It's digitizing the, the sense of vision or um, the sound. Right, you have a microphone uh, that that's recording our conversation now. So there's always it's always important to capture what's going on in the real world and translate it to something digital. And then you can use all the wonderful tools around AI, machine learning, and so on, and, and, or, or whatever you like. And um, so if you think about our senses as, as human, um, vision and, and hearing is doing pretty well. It's, it's relatively um, established. Um, there are a lot of touch sensors, you know, accelerometers, and so on. Um, there's way less in terms of smell and taste. And um, one, one reason is that those two rely often, oftentimes, or at least in our body, on direct chemical interactions. Uh, so you need uh, very different receptors uh, to just recognize all these different chemicals you might smell or taste. And that's why it's hard. And um, that's why there hasn't been... Uh, so much going on in that field but that's a pity because it's still very valuable information you can you have dogs sniffing if someone has you know a bomb or drugs or maybe cancer and so it's a very meaningful field so 
we we felt like there there must be a way to change that. Um, so far, what what people had been doing was uh, just taking samples and analyzing them in the lab with gas chromatography, for example. And um, but that's of course not always practical. So our innovation was around let's find a sensor that can be very small, uh, very affordable, but can also selectively look at all these different gases in the world around us. And um, so I would say the biggest innovative step was um, to make that simple. Uh, we had a carbon nanotube based uh, chemical resistor, something that changes electrical resistance based on a gas concentration. And we made it selective. The best sensor doesn't help you if it can detect, let's say, um, oxygen but it also responds to everything else like carbon dioxide or nitrogen around you. So that selectivity was really a, a big deal. And, and there we benefited from a lot of work that the lab had done before. And, and food was, was one of the first uh, potential application cases was like, the, the, there's a real industry interest here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because we had a, a platform technology, right? It could go everywhere. And um, one, one time we talked with an investor and, we pitched that as a platform technology and he's like smiling at us and he's like, okay, everyone calls their stuff platform technology if they don't really know which market they should go for. And <laughs> to some extent that was true, right? You could use it in, we looked um, at the food industry uh, for fruit ripening, for example. We looked at uh, chicken houses. There you detect ammonia gas to control the ventilation to keep the chicken healthy and then they also grow better and so on. Um, we looked at worker safety in industry, where you want to protect workers from toxic gases. Now the company is looking at um, some ways, and I don't want to go too much into, into detail there, but around product authentication to use chemicals and gas sensing to, uh, to confirm that a product is authentic. Let's say an iPhone, instead of the hologram sticker, you have C2Sense technology. Um, so... There are a lot of different markets, and that's something that was definitely a challenge for for us to find one that is the most promising. We did decide to start with with food, and um, but the company evolved later uh, to to look at others as well. I, I was going to ask about that. Like, how do you go about sort of making that decision, or how much time do you spend on on experimenting in a lot of fields versus mm -hmm. you just have limited resources and need to also like go in one direction to, to make headway. I think that's a tricky one. What One program I like a lot there is the i program from the National Science Foundation. Um, but others use the same methodology where uh, you're encouraged to talk with around 100 potential customers and, um, and, and see where they're stretched and learn more and, and then decide based on that. What, what we do as scientists, I definitely did it, but I also see it with, with other scientist founders, we are used to a different type of research. We would read papers and then, you know, we would try to, you know, derive, deduct uh, logically what makes sense, right? And um, when you're looking at markets, it, it doesn't always work like that because there are a lot of inefficiencies. There are a lot of things that are not intuitively clear. Uh, so we have to go out and talk with a lot of people. And um, then we might find people who care a lot about our industry or about our product, even so it might not have made sense. It could even be a personal motivation of that VP at that particular company. So it's really going out and talking with a lot of people. And 
we didn't do that well in the beginning. Uh, we uh, kind of started, we were understaffed like almost every startup. Um, we had a lot of technology development to do. Fundraising was was a big topic for for, for me and and you know the the other colleagues as well. And uh, so we were always a little bit light on on the market research. And I would encourage any startup to invest rather too much than too little time on that early on, ideally, while they're still uh, even before they are incorporated. Sort of that, that that chicken and egg problem. You're you're looking for money. You're fundraising. They're probably looking for some market traction or some sort of feedback from the market, which yeah. you don't have time for, because you're busy <laughs> trying to convince investors. You're you're always busy, and I think the biggest challenge for any founder is time and energy management. Right? You'll probably be doing that for five to ten years, so it it doesn't help if you can sustain a certain workload for a year, and then you also have to decide not to do a lot of things. And and then choosing the right ones is incredibly difficult. And I think it's also difficult for, for scientist founders because um, we are trained to attack the most difficult problems uh, because they might create the highest impact papers, um, at least you know, combined with maybe the right field. And um, when you do a startup, I think it's almost good to just attack a problem that almost seems so easy that you're wondering why no one has done it before. And and so so t- trying to reduce complexity in, in terms of what you're going for might free up enough time to do proper market research and still have time for fundraising and for building the team and then you know, all the other things you have to do. You already mentioned Icor, I know, sort of, of, of the Shpandi Center, I think, and the engine. Like, Tell me a little bit about sort of who helped you on your on your journey out of the lab, so you're there. You have this technology. You have sort of Tim Swagger saying, "Look, let's. You should be a CEO, or or you should be founder mm-hmm. of this company." Mm-hmm. What happens then? Like, who who supports you on that on that next step? Yeah, so so it was was interesting. It was two layers. It was the support, the the actual support, and it was also the external confirmation to just show to ourselves, oh, it's not just us who are excited. It's people who could also have the choice to not to be excited to who want to support us. And um, the first step there was getting funding from the Deshpande Center. That's an, um, a center at MIT that, well, helps founders get ready to, to launch their companies, essentially. So it's, um, it's a grant uh, to pay part of your salary. Um, and that allows you, if, if you're funded by some research uh, organization, uh, you have to work on that research that you're funded for, right? And uh, you cannot do business development. Um, and the Spandi Center does what um, Fraunhofer Head, for example, also does uh, in, in, in some cases, right? It frees up some of your time where at least you're legally allowed to work on startup topics. So that was really good. But then they also have a very strong mentorship program. They have events where you pitch, where you get in touch with, with different different people, and it helps you immerse uh, yourself in that startup ecosystem. Uh, some of the contacts, one one of my first consulting client um, was someone I'm connected to through the Deshpande Center, for example. So it, it just um, is still super beneficial even way after I, I left the startup. So they were extremely helpful and, and supportive. And while we had the Deshpande Center funding, we found our first CEO uh, through Tim's network. Um, he was a part-time CEO while he was also running another startup 
for the first couple of years of, of C2Sense. And so we found him and, and another person um, who was an IP lawyer by training. So we found our initial team um, and, the, and the funding and, and the support also gave us the time to do that. Then the um, last thing we we did is we got uh, funding from uh, the National Science Foundation, it's called, uh, the uh, SBIR program that provided funding for the first six months after we launched. That's something where we do have vehicles in Germany, but it seems a tiny bit more difficult here and there uh, to get that funding once you're out of the university or, or institute. Um, so we had that. And then uh, later on, uh, and we can, uh, maybe I'll, I'll take a quick breath and then and, and, uh, we can dive deeper in there. But later we had plenty of support from the engine and from breakout labs and from others. It was really instrumental to building the company. What was MIT's role in, in sort of that building of the company in terms of IP or like support? I mean, yes, they have their, their programs, but sort of the, the organization as, as, a, as a whole. Mm -hmm. It's um, MIT is relatively strict when it comes to conflict of interest. So once you start your company, uh, you're not using lab resources, at least you're not supposed to. And we, we played that uh, very, very clean. And uh, so there was... Um, no like chatting with the people in the lab who were still working on sensing projects and um i think there uh in, in germany sometimes it's i mean it's still clean but sometimes even more generous so there mrt is, is relatively strict um what uh but i mean they created the environment where we could work on this applied research they have dozens of different startup programs and i think sometimes in, in Germany, we are afraid that, you know, if we have two programs that there might be a little bit of overlap and, and it might be too much and people might get confused. And yeah, okay, that's true. If we have limited resources, we have to be careful about how to use them. But um, it was certainly not bad to have a choice of, of a lot of different things. And so MIT creates that environment where all these programs can can exist. They're not all funded by MIT. The Spandy Center is funded from um from donors, um, especially Des Deshpande, uh, who, who started it. And, but they create the environment where that's possible. And um, they also celebrate innovation and, and startups. So, so culturally, it, it felt like something you can be proud of that the Institute recognized. And, and then, of course, MIT holds all the, uh, all the patents that we filed while we were there. And um, so C2Sense has an exclusive license for, for that IP you know, that they negotiate with us. So working together with them to find, find terms that were agreeable. Um, of course, there was work on both sides, but it was really good to, you know, to, to you know, go through the process. And they were generally very supportive uh, in that process. Very cool. I want to go Back to, you mentioned sort of some of the, the, the first co-founders, the, the sort of co or the, the, the part-time CEO you mentioned, um, you already said like, um, it, it was all about building an, a team for you. Like that, that was part of the opportunity why you wanted to start the company in the first place. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about that, that first team, that first team of, of co-founders maybe, and, and also you deciding what kind of role were you playing? Like you're the first guy there, you have the technology, now you're looking for people. Um, around you, like, 
why did you decide to be the CTO and how did sort of the other people align in that in that team come mm -hmm. together? Yeah. So um, in the beginning, of the way we Tim and I we were looking for co-founders, and and we both agreed that um, it would be good to have someone as the initial CEO who has startup experience. It's a uh, I mean, I, I managed to learn it, but but you're not trained for it. Even if you take a few business school classes, it's not, you know, it, it, it takes a little practice. So we, we at least in our case, we, we wanted someone with, with a little experience there. And um, through our network, we, well, we met a number of people, and including Eric and Winston. Um, Eric became the, the first CEO and Winston, our initial corporate counsel. And um, it, it felt like a very good fit. Um, they had the experience. They were uh, very pleasant to work with. They they understand technology well, um, and then they brought these uh, these other aspects that, that Tim and I didn't have. And and of of course, it could have been an option that I'm CEO in the beginning and we build it like that. But I think it would have been quite a bit slower and and more complicated. And uh, so. So I'm glad we we had Winston and and Eric on board, and um, now because of the setup, we we were pretty short on funding. And with Eric, we had the, the very nice situation that he was was willing to work for equity uh, without a cash compensation. Um, but of course, the the side effect was that he had this other startup that he that was about twenty thirty people or so that he was managing. Uh, so he really had to juggle with his time and. Um, that in turn gave me the opportunity to also be involved in tasks that a C CTO would usually not be involved in. Um, some of the administrative things, some of the planning, we did a lot together, which is not just a time question, it's also the way Eric interpreted our, our work together. Um, so that was really nice and it, it gave me a chance when uh, we were ready to have me transition into the CEO role that wasn't a super bumpy adjustment. It was actually just felt like a fairly natural transition. When when was that? Like, was that transition always planned, or how did that develop? Like, no, it it, it wasn't planned from from the beginning. It, it was uh, something we hadn't excluded. Um, what what triggered it was that at the time my green card was approved. That was about two years into into the company. Uh, my green card was approved, which gives a lot more freedom than a work visa about shifting roles and, and, and so on, makes, makes life much, much easier. And um, the other part was that um, Eric had moved from Boston to Washington, D.C. Um, a little bit before, and um, we we felt like it's, it's just more practical to have the CEO uh, be someone who's, who's local, who interacts with the team on, on a daily basis. And you know, we, we also didn't have the funds to, um, you know, pay Eric, who, you know, who, who has quite a bit more experience than, than I do, uh, pay him a, a full-time being in Boston type of, of salary. So it felt like a, a logical choice uh, for us. And uh, so Tim, Eric, and, and I discussed this uh, and, and all agreed that it was, was time to make that transition. What did you learn in that that experience, or like, what was the biggest difference first as a researcher, then as a CTO, then as a CEO? Like, how did your your role, your way of working, how did that that change? Um, in a number of, of ways, I think one um, 
one is how I deal with risk. It's, uh, I think as, as a researcher, in the beginning, it was, ah, okay, let's see. And then how, what happens if it doesn't work? What happens if it, you know, fails? What are people going to think? What am I going to do? And, um, you know, now, and, and that's something I, I, by the way, see with a lot of uh, founders who, who are coach who are, have been or are on a similar track. Um, we're, we're not, we're trained to be relatively risk averse. As a scientist, when you promise that you'll achieve a certain result, you probably just promise 20, 30% less than you think you can very safely get. And um, so now I think about it differently. I, when, when I started a new venture that might fail, I think about, okay, what's the worst case scenario? And, and could I handle that uh, financially uh, or in, in whatever other way? And usually it's not so bad. So I, I look very differently at risk. It's still calculated, but but a little more optimistic and, and maybe not as uh, anxious uh, or, or so. So that's kind of the first part. The second part um, I liked about the, especially the CEO role, a CTO also for as a leader of the R&D team, but CEO of, of the company. Um, I liked this like, building the company, the internal leadership part. Um, what I had completely underestimated is how much of the time is around fundraising, investor um, relations and so on. And um, almost all of my investors were amazing. And so, so still like, I mean, there can be less pleasant experiences than, than once I had, but it was still a lot more work than I thought. And uh, so that part was definitely an adjustment where now if I, do it again or when, I guess. Uh, I plan much more time for, for that and, and would delegate much more of the other things uh, to free up time. What does it take to do each of these roles well? Mm. It's it's interesting because I, I think every I, I've seen a lot of amazing CTOs and CEOs and everyone is different. And I think the first step is knowing your leadership style, what motivates you, what you're good at, and building the role around that. Um, there can be a CEO who is very detail-oriented, who maybe complements um, their role in the team with someone who is more of a visionary, maybe as a COO or as, as who, whoever else. Um, could be the other way around. A CEO, very visionary, maybe a little sloppy on, on some of the details, Right, that person might need a chief financial officer who, who makes sure nothing falls apart. Um, so I think knowing yourself and, and seeing where your strengths are and, and building the role around it is the first part. Um, then maybe as some of the general things, I, I think uh, both are our leadership roles. And I think to be a good leader, especially of a high performance team, um, there's no way to do it without empathy for your team, right? Sometimes you must make a decision that is not nice for someone, but but at least you should care. Uh, you should care about developing your team. You should care about, you know, how their day-to-day -day life is and not just see it as a productivity tool. And I think that creates like, that's, that creates amazing uh, output for the company because people are more motivated. Uh, people stay around longer. Um, people sometimes work the extra hour or two if necessary but it's also more sustainable. Uh, so that, that's a big part. And then I think 
between the two roles as a CTO, if you don't understand the technology well enough to create a, a meaningful roadmap, okay, you shouldn't be in that role. You should be excited about the technology. You should, um, yeah, really, that should be a big focus. That's also one reason why I transitioned to CEO because I if, didn't have that that pure technology focus that that other good CTOs have. Um, and as CEO, it's around um, dealing with a lot of different interests. You have investors, you have employees, you have customers, you have everyone around you um, who thinks they know exactly what you should do. So you have to kind of deal with that pressure um, that's coming from everywhere, find good solutions. And, and sometimes also be okay having to decide something that someone is unhappy with. And so I think that's a big part of, of that role. Someone, I remember at, at some bar, I, I ran to a friend of a friend and told them I was CEO of my startup. He's like, yeah, I always wanted to be my own boss. And that's like the <laughs> furthest away from like a startup CEO's role. <laughs> you know, it's really, uh, you have like, dozens of bosses it's like much more complicated that's what makes it fun but it's definitely something to be prepared for one of these these stakeholders you just mentioned is 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 the team you build up and that was also part of your your motivation like um tell me a little bit about about that journey of you said high performance team like when i, I was leading a high performance team like how do you build up a high performance team like how do you find people to go on that journey with you? How do you convince them? Mm -hmm. It's um, part of it is practice, right? So I, I, I became a group leader for the Scouts when I was 15. And when I was 17, the group had grown enough that we brought other people in. Um, and, and I was organizing the, the team and, and you know, structuring it. And then later, for four or five years or so, I think, um, I was leading the Cub Scout program in Hessen in my home state. And um, so they are training group leaders, organizing events. And so there we had a team of, I think, 10 or so people. And they were all volunteers. And it was a lot of work. It was like 10, 20 weekends a year that people would dedicate of their free time. So that really helped me think about like, what, what, what motivates a team. Because we wanted to get a lot done. We wanted to organize amazing events and so on. We couldn't pay people. So that false apart so people would just show up because they enjoy being part of it and so that helped me build build this team and, and and think about okay how can i be as a leader so people don't you know run away it's it's, it's much easier to learn then because when you pay people sometimes they hate you or, or the company or the work situation but they cannot go because they need the money so you get much more filtered feedback so that's like one one part now like in more practical terms um, the, the first, so there's like the whole leadership empathy, uh, part that I think takes practice and, you know, learning about, thinking about, caring about most of all. Then there's more the, the technical aspect. I think when you bring people on board, it's about really knowing what, who you want and what you want. Um, oftentimes we take shortcuts there. We think like, oh yeah, we want to hire a chemist now for our company. Or, or an engineer or, or someone with an MBA. And then you go out and talk with people who have MBAs and then you hire someone who you like. This is a horrible way to build a team because there are so many people with MBAs that are completely different. 
and then you know you cannot select someone for something if you don't know what you're looking for so really knowing what what you need and that can be a broadly a broad role or a more specialized role but i think that that's really important then spending the time to get to know them to actually answer the question if they are fit for what you're looking for because if i mean if you take a shortcut there you might save half an hour or an hour um but then you have to live with that person for you know the next four or five years potentially so not not taking shortcuts there and you know once i started doing that in in a more systematic fashion um i i haven't had problems anymore with with people like that's hiring mistakes is a, it's a bad word but sometimes before once or twice it happened that we had brought someone on board who was amazing but a, a, not a good fit for what we needed and that's super frustrating because now you have to figure out either a different role or, or they have to leave the company and, and no one wants that it also doesn't do them justice so kind of that selection process once they are there well making sure you spend the time with a team, give feedback, get their feedback. And um, there, what I notice is that when you have these one-on-one -on -one conversations with your team, is to never make them, uh, so to always try and make them a two-hour conversation, which sounds like a, a huge investment for a team leader. But the problem was that, uh, or at least my personal observation was that the first hour is always pretty superficial. It's about, okay, maybe I want to race or maybe everything is going fine or talking about like day-to-day -day stuff. And then after about an hour, we don't really know what else to talk about. And then this is when the interesting stuff comes up where maybe a conflict with a colleague or, or this kind of thing or someone is unhappy or there's something going on in their life that they're, you know, don't know if they can share it or not. Um, and But at the point they at least share what they're comfortable with. And that second hour of that meeting was always the most meaningful and it allowed us to find issues and, and help them help the team member address it. So investing the time really uh, into your team. How often did you have those one on ones? Mm, yeah, uh, maybe every six or 12 months way, I think it would be good to have them at least every six months, sometimes a little more more often. Um, but of course, it's uh, one, one thing is what I, I think makes sense and what I I know makes sense, and one thing is to actually get it done. <laughs> um, one one thing I, I did do, and and I think that's not a, a secret or or anything that I invented, is to be good with feedback. So what what I did, let's say when we had our R and D meeting, and I felt like someone did something uh, very smart or amazing or something where they improved on. I, I took a note, um, like in my, in my little notebook, and <clears throat> and later shared that with them. I think they're it's a little extra effort, but they really appreciate it. It's, it's the best way to give meaningful feedback, especially um, to remember it if, if your next one-on-one -on -one conversation with them is, is a week away or maybe even a few months away, to say something a little more substantial than, oh, it's great to have you on the team. So these like micro feedback uh, things you can do all the time. I, I I love the the Cub Scout analogy already. Sort of that that picture of sort of motivating people to come on a journey with you. 
you can pay them, so you get the the direct feedback. Um, and I love the the learnings um, maybe for for other people building up teams right now. So you said sort of that that one key learning I understand from you is sort of this really dedicated time to actually figure out who we're looking for, like not just because everyone needs a chemist to build out their their chemistry technology in lab, but really nail down who that is so you can then do the second part of understanding like how like who who's that person getting to know them and and um the, what you alluded to is sort of like does he fit to the rest of the company like how do you figure out if i mean there's there's one part sort of fitting to the role and actually being good at what you're looking for and then there's a second part of can he fit in with all the other people i've already hired and i've sort of already built built up that, that that last part is, is super interesting and, and important, right? Because um, we don't want a team that's too homogenous, right? We we don't want you know ten ten dudes who are all the same age and all you know go to the same frat parties. Uh, that's gonna collapse uh, pretty quickly. So we want a heterogeneous team uh, to have a you know a number of different ideas to have have a mix of, of different people. But then there are some parts where we need to be homogenous and and that's like some of the core values how we treat others how openly we like to share information how uh you know me being in the spotlight versus giving my my colleague uh the spotlight when, when she has done amazing in the projects and not stealing her her thunder so these kinds of things i think it's essential to have a very good fit because that's that defines a core culture and then as long as you have that, you can have a, and you should have a very a wide mix of, of different backgrounds that, that, you know, as long, not for the sake of it, but, you know, as long as it makes sense for, for where the company is. I was going to say that's, that's a super hard balance. Like some people seem to be looking for diversity just because we, we should now be a diverse team, but sort of knowing of like, what things do we need to align on and where do we need to be diverse to actually, actually advance whatever we're doing. And in what sense does it make more sense to be homogenous? Because actually that way we can execute faster maybe or, or go quicker in some direction. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a different layers, right? It's uh, the, if you want to be fast, you want a homogenous team, um, but, and you don't want people who are so different that you spend all the time discussing. Um, and okay, there, there you have to be a little smart about how, how you do it, but I think it's, uh, there's no rule that you couldn't be homogenous in in some aspects, but very diverse in 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 others. And I think that's uh, it's important to be aware of it, and it's important to just put you know the extra time into it. So, uh, for example, in terms of gender balance, at, at my own startup, we felt at some point it's a bit tilted having having to uh, having you know more men in the team. And um, we were looking to hire two new people uh, to bachelor level chemists for, for the company. And a lot of the applications were from guys. And, you know, some of them were, were good. And um, But we felt like, okay, if we keep just hiring only men, at, at some point it, it looks and feels a bit, you know, unbalanced. And uh, so we... We decided to keep the posting open a month or two longer um, to find uh, find enough people um, there 
with, with different backgrounds or in, in this case, uh, men and women. And um, it really paid off. We, we hired two, two amazing women who, you know, not because they're women, but because they were the best candidates in the mix. And, and, and sometimes we're a little bit lazy because we want to hire someone super quickly and then we just take the first person we find. And, and oftentimes these are people who are a little more similar to us. Uh, maybe because of, they come through our network and, and so on. And and I'd encourage people to sometimes do that if they need to, but also not always do it because this way you just create this bubble that, that is a little dangerous. That might be nice in the beginning to just like get moving quickly. But the question that you're sort of posing is like, what does this also send as a signal later on? Like maybe later on we're in need of, of a lot of candidates and, and they look at us and say, look, you're just 10 guys in the chemistry lab. Why, why do I apply? Exactly. It sends like, regardless how nice and, and, and whatever you, you are, it does send a message. And in certain roles, you don't fill every every day, right? You don't hire five chief technology officers. So if you, if you, if you like, especially on the management level, if you don't pay attention to it early, it's impossible to recover. You don't want to fire people to fill, to free up a spot, right? So, um, so that's something to pay attention to pretty early and, and just have on your agenda too. I'd like to go back to your role because as far as I know, it changed back from, from CEO. You went back into a more CTO role before you actually left C2Sense um, a, a while ago. Tell me sort of what, how that decision developed and like what, what took place, how the company developed, maybe how you developed. One, one thing we did was um, when I transitioned to CEO, we didn't backfill it, uh, the CTO role. Um, and um, uh, one part of it was a budget um, decision. Part of it was that I felt that we had an amazing R&D team uh, that you know, could, could get a lot done uh, you know, without handholding or uh, with like zero handholding really for that matter. Um, but the result was that I was essentially CEO and honorary CTO, right? And uh, because, of course, I would still be at the R&D meetings and so on. And um, then, you know, we had uh, Tim, our uh, my academic co-founder, and, and Eric, uh, the, the first CT, uh, CEO, um, who were both not you know, full-time at the company. So um, we had that situation where we were growing, things were developing nicely, but the workload was just not a one-person workload. And I think it's really important to, um, and you can have a single founder company or, or a single like full-time founder company, but it's pretty fragile. Uh, you don't have a person to just like talk with every day and exchange ideas or to just take turns when one person uh, needs a little break. And um, so we were at a point where it was clear it's not a one-person show on the sea level of the company. And I, I thought about the scenario, could I be CEO and hire a CTO? Um, it, it felt that, and it's not a bad idea, but it's um, it felt that then, you know, it, it might take a while until we can make a full transition because I'm still very deep in, in the technology. And so I, I had this idea of um, let's bring on a CEO uh, and and have it kind of like a you know a good balanced team where they would have like the the higher level title CEO versus CTO, 
Um, but then I was a co-founder, so it felt like a good combination um, to, to balance it in. Um, so I discussed that with the board and we, we started the search that took about six to eight months or so. Um, and we found someone amazing who's uh, still CEO of the company uh, now. And, um, you know, with, with him coming on board, it was clear that I would make that transition to CTO. Um, what also became clear during that time is that, you know, maybe what I need is really doing something different. And, uh, you know, I'd been in gas sensing for 10 years or what? 10 years doing my PhD and then at, at the company and um, it, you know, staying at the company and they're still around, they're doing really well, um, would have been an exciting journey, but I, I wanted to try something else. And so I you know, talked with the, the chairman of the board, talked talk with the CEO and then um, we decided that I would leave the company. And um, it's always, uh, I think, in the end, it was a good choice for me personally, 100%. I think it's also a good choice for the company. Um, but at the time, of course, it's not like the most exciting decision because it came relatively shortly after the new CEO joined. And um, it wasn't, you know, it hadn't been the big plan at the time. Um, but, you know, in the end, we, we could make it work. And, and I knew the company's in good hands. So it didn't feel like, you know, leaving anything bad behind I was going to ask, I mean, you, you, you poured in a couple of, as, as you said, a decade of, of work in the end, like a couple of years in your PhD, then like years and, and probably a lot of time, um, a lot of late nights, et cetera, to build that company and then sort of saying, okay, I'm fine with not being a part of where this journey continues. And, and I, I can see this be in someone else's hands. Like, how do you decide that for yourself? It was time for, for a new chapter. I didn't have something new lined up. Um, I, I took half a year off, worked with an amazing executive coach um, to, you know, on all kinds of things, but including like which way to shape my career in this work. Uh, now the work with Max Planck uh, came out of some other consulting work I'm, I'm doing that I, I'm really happy with. And, um, you know, so... I was pretty sure, even though I didn't have something specific lined up, that it's time for the next phase uh, for, for me. And, um, you know, the other part, how easy or hard it is to leave something behind that you spend so much time on. I, I think that's a thing I'd encourage people to and you know, not be too attached there. Right? I, I think if it's like, if it feels, people always say your startup is like your baby. I, I think that's a, a horrible comparison. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, you're not gonna like, like have a baby and then sell it after five to ten years to, to you know the highest bidder is so hopefully not. And so um, I think it's healthy as a founder. You always care a ton about your startup anyway. It's so it's good to be a little bit more disconnected than than you feel you you can be because it makes you make better decisions and you know more more sober decisions and. Um, you know, for, for me transitioning out, we had thought about should I be involved, let's say, on the board or in some capacity. But in the end, it's the last thing you want is like being CEO of a startup. And then the old CEO and co-founder always tells you what they think is the smarter choice. Uh, so I, I think, it, it, I mean, I'm still a shareholder. I'm still rooting for them for my own interest, but also because I care. But I, I try to let them do their thing. And I think that, I mean, it seems 
work really well. And I, I think that's what I would encourage everyone to do in such a situation. Find something else you're excited about, let them do the thing, they know what they're doing, they're good. Um, and then just, uh, well, cheer, cheer for them from, from a, a step away. From a distance. Um, then, th then tell us a little bit about what you what you're doing now, and and sort of what are the learnings maybe you're also taking along from that entrepreneurial journey to to what you do today. So what what I'm doing now are um, a few things. It's uh, my my brother once described it as management consulting or, or business consulting for startups, and, and that's that's kind of what it is. And so I. Um, I'm in Boston, but have, have strong ties to Germany. My parents live in Frankfurt, two of my siblings and their families, and one lives in Cologne. So um, I always thought about, should I be in Boston or should I be in Germany? And uh, then, like, working with Therese, my, my, my coach, um, well, we well she figured it out, and, and then I, I it took a while to sink in, uh, essentially, <laughs> that uh, there's no reason to have to have to choose. So what I'm... I'm doing now is I have a, a client in Boston, amazing um, startup in 3D printing, where my role is to help them build the team. So a recruiting team planning role and that's something I just happen to be really passionate about. Hire some 15 people or so together uh, with them. And um, then I, about well, a good half year ago, I started working with the Max Planck Foundation. Their Max Planck Society in Germany, they feel like, we have a 2 billion euro or so budget for for research um but they would love more of that to turn into startup companies uh, because some of the the work is maybe too early too risky for out licensing to big companies so a startup would be a way to bring the technology to society and a lot of it is um really suitable for for that so they felt that um, um they already have some good programs but they wanted to do a little more. So the Max Planck Foundation hired myself and, and two others uh, to find new um, you know, new startup projects, find interesting uh, founders, and then support them on their journey to launching a company and, and eventually you know, raising outside capital, standing on, on their own feet. And so that's what I'm doing. And then um, I have uh, some hobby projects here and there when like entrepreneurs approach me and they want some advice on their financial model on their business plan on on, on recruiting uh, of course you know you, you, you chat with them and, and try to help them as much as possible because many people have have helped me on my journey so no new company of your own on the horizon at the moment you know I, I think it's uh, no no new company so the answer is no um, and uh, I'm I'm open to it, but uh, not for the sake of, of doing it. I, I think is you know if if I come across something really exciting um, through people who who I meet, or or through through an idea of my own, or better through a problem I observe that that I feel like I have a, a solution for, I I would do it again. It's a ton of fun. Um, but like what I said in the very beginning, it it needs to be something that almost feels too easy. Uh, to be true, because that's the kind of thing where where you can build something exciting uh, on. It should be too easy for you know me personally or, or you know the team skill set to to be true, and you know then I'll I'll, I'll do it again. And in the meanwhile, I, I think uh, I'm having a ton of fun uh, working with founders, being part of the ecosystem, and and sharing some some of the experiences and 
um, good, good and bad I've, I've made with other people to help them. That's that's super valuable. I'm, I'm sure um, you already mentioned sort of some things the, the Max Planck Society and, and Foundation are trying to build up. Uh, maybe as a last question, you can sort of seeing or being in-depth in that, that MIT ecosystem, which is sort of heralded as, as one of the best um, entrepreneurship ecosystems probably world worldwide, especially for, for technology startups. Like what are things or what are key factors that you've learned there that, that helps sort of that, that creation of startups? And I don't want to go into the, let's create another Silicon Valley or whatever in Germany, but sort of like what are unique strengths or like differences you see in, in, in Germany? And like, what are things that that might be even better here or things where 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 countries could learn from each other um if you bridge those two worlds yeah it's funny every time someone says like the silicon valley of this and that city it always sounds a little bit funny um because i mean why not create something where you play to your own strengths like like we say and so what what is special at mit is um they do apply to research other places do that too um but they really take pride in, in their startup ecosystem. They have a lot of programs. They're not afraid of, of promoting it, of, of maybe spending some money. And so that's the first part. Then you have a lot of entrepreneurs um, in the Boston area, same as Silicon Valley, just different types of, of startups they, they came out of, um, that have made money with startups and are willing to invest in, in young startups. And um if you've made your money in, in that area, you're maybe a different type of investor than an investor that, I don't know, inherited a, a bunch of, of gold or bitcoins or something. And um, so so that's extremely helpful because those investors are not just investors, but also mentors and, and supporters. And, um, you know, then you have access to a, an amazing um, pool of, of people who are entrepreneurial uh, who are who are smart, who are, who are good at what they do, engineering, chemistry, whatever it, it might be. So that's all really helpful. Um, now, do we have that? Could we have that in Germany? Yeah, why not? I think the the startup ecosystem is is not always as as deep, or maybe the investor landscape is um, not quite as uh, as easy to navigate. Um, but it's growing, and um, I think in Germany, what we have is. Um, I mean, we have a different cost structure. Boston is super expensive. Silicon Valley is even worse. Um, so that's an advantage. We have people who are excited about startups. It doesn't have to be everyone, but there are plenty of people who want to do, do something. We have a very good education on uh, in our universities. We have uh, this whole um, apprenticeship program where you can have a lab tech who's like much stronger maybe than the average lab tech uh, you might find here. So... Oh, we do have uh, the tools there. I think um, what Germany could learn from the U.S. is a little bit around speed. I think a lot of things take forever. Uh, they're very optimized, but they're not optimized for startups. They, they take long and they're complicated. There's probably a reason why they were built, but maybe we need different solutions if we want to have more startup growth. And, um, you know, I, I think that the the other part is just how people think about risk. The scientists in the U.S. are also risk averse, um, but they are still able to accept a little more risk than a scientist in Germany. And I think that's something that that could shift. What what is very good, what positively surprised me is um, how much support at Max Planck, for example, where where I've seen it the most, 
how much support we are willing to give the startup financially in terms of programs that are around. Of course, more is better, but um, I think that's already in really good good shape. And I think that's a really good foundation um, at Max Planck. What, what I really like is how excited people are about startups and how willing they are to work together and, and improve the ecosystem. Thanks so much, Jan. I'm sure a lot of researchers can, can benefit from, from your experience and I'm uh, curious to see what you build up at, at Max Planck. Um, thank you for your time today. Um, it's been a great Thanks, pleasure. Thanks, yeah, Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. And yeah, looking forward to, to talking again soon. Thank you. Thank you.